0: All right, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Nicole Bukowski. She's the CEO and founder of Elaborate, which is a software solution that modernizes how health systems send health data to eliminate panic patient outreach, which is a better way of saying they make those lab reports that are totally incomprehensible, completely comprehensible. Um, And I should say that Tusk Venture Partners is a major investor in Elaborate. And I should also tell you that as we've been going out talking to our LPs, and they're like, what are you excited about in Fund 3? Elaborate's one of the first things that we say. So it is, uh, and and people get it, and they're excited about it. Um, So, yeah, so anyway, thank you for coming on. Of
1: course, yeah. I think, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur and someone who's building a solution, it's really exciting to see when you get on a pitch, and the first question I ask is, Bradley, tell me about the last time you got your lab results. And you raise your hands and you say, oh, this was such a horrible experience. I was, you know, on Friday at six o'clock, I got my kids' results. I had no idea what they meant. I Googled it. I thought my kid had kidney failure. So
0: did you find that? Like, I remember when when you pitched me the first time and it just sort of resonated so intuitively because I'm like. Yeah. Like I remember Googling glucose 0. 0.79. Is that good or bad? Right. <laughs> yep. And like, I think every least neurotic person has had that experience. Um, it, it, have you found that as you, and I know we're skipping ahead and we'll jump back, but like as you were sort of raising the first round and as, as obviously soon you go out for the series, Hey, um, have you found that it, people just sort of get it immediately?
1: Yeah. I think that on the patient side, when you talk to someone and they've received their health data and now depending on who it is. And during the time when we were fundraising, it was uh, early COVID, so a lot of folks hadn't had their testing in a while. But you still remember that last time you got the result, you didn't understand what anything meant and you start Googling. So people generally anchor on that experience, where as a founder, it was important for me to illustrate the story was how that impacts your doctor. Because there's not only this pretty horrible experience on the patient side and this acceptance of the no news is good news sort of mentality, But then on the flip side, when when your doctor is getting all of your questions because you've Googled or now ChatGPT'd your health data, uh, the doctor is spending anywhere from 25 to 35 minutes a day on those questions. And that's time that they're not getting paid. They're doing it in their personal time because they care about you as a patient. And so tying those two sides together uh, in order to make the business model make sense in the way that we were pursuing uh, the product launch was probably one of the more important pieces in our early fundraising.
0: Yeah, you know, often the best are the ones who are like, wait, why hasn't anyone done this before? Yes. Uh, did <laughs> you get that, that a way. lot? Uh,
1: yeah, I did get that a lot. But to be fair, it, we weren't the first people who pointed out this problem. There have been lots of other folks in this space who have said, this is a, a challenge, where most of them, I think, have not quite threaded the needle in the same way as we have as in tying the doctor and the patient together. So back in the late, I'd say in the late 10s, from 2015 to 2020, you saw an explosion of test kit companies that were solving for this problem by offering a very specific niche version of their product for heart health or GI health. And then they would have an expansive report that explains to the patient, what does this mean and what should I do next? Now, the challenge is that to build that business takes actually quite a bit of you know, direct-to-consumer marketing dollars and education of the market. And that's not where the majority of Americans are getting their health care. They're getting it from their conventional doctor going to a hospital or health system. And so the insight that, you know, myself and our early team had was we need to go where people are actually going for their testing, where 90% of Americans are going for their testing and solve the problem for that population.
0: Right. So let's take a step back because you've been in digital health pretty early on, at least in this, in this iteration of it, Oscar and then then at Parsley. So, When did you join Oscar?
1: Yeah, so I joined Oscar in 20... So I signed my offer in 2014, and I joined January of 2015. Okay, So. so we're
0: eight and a half years later. Yeah. Where is digital health today compared to what you would have expected and predicted when you started Oscar?
1: Well, just to give you a sense of the landscape of digital health, when I joined Oscar, we were, you know, I was employee 86. We were fewer than 100 people in the Puck building, very quickly exploded out of that space. Um, But at the time, you know, as a health insurance business, we were the first business to really use technology as the digital front door. And now you can't go to a conference without everyone saying that they are uh, owning the patient's digital front door and innovating on that experience. Um, Another example, um, myself and a team of folks were tasked at actually launching Oscar's first telemedicine offering, offering free telemedicine to our patients at a time when no one was using telemedicine and really actually no one was offering it or covering it for free. And this was about three years before COVID hit. So I think that in the last 10 years, what you've seen is a real willingness and adoption um, of the clinical community to start using some of these digital tools for interacting with patients. Um, And patients are really demanding that experience, which is why you're starting to see some of the more concierge and digital forward practices uh, of the last few years really pop up and be successful.
0: So if if I throw out a couple of different arguments for why the norms shifted around this, you kind of rank them for me. So one would be COVID, right? And all of a sudden we all became much more aware of the value proposition of, of telemedicine. Um, two would just be as smartphone adoption has become, I think it's like 96% in this country right now, everyone is used to getting their sort of services and products online immediately and so the comfort level of doing that with their healthcare care increased um and some i assume is that just the industry got much more sophisticated and was able to offer better products and services to patients so how would you rank those as sort of what what led to this
1: well interestingly enough i think that even though yes you're correct that there's lots of users using smartphones Um, And I don't know that that number is fully representative because there are communities who actually don't they really don't have access to that type of of Technology or even that sort of infrastructure Um, But when you look at COVID COVID was actually a very big accelerant for why people started to use technology in that way Um, And you saw people who had never You know folks in the Medicare Advantage population had literally never booked a visit online had always called their doctor old-school now we're being forced to go through and book online in order to get their COVID test. So that COVID was actually a big accelerant for what you're describing. I'd say probably the bigger piece is, is almost uh, just that you see it and then you think it's possible. So you know, to, back to the lab results example, when I remember when I was a kid, I we'd have to go into my doctor's office and pay thirty dollars to get a copy of my lab results whenever I wanted to go to a summer camp or right. you know go to college, whatever. Um, n- now thinking back to that time, it almost feels incomprehensible that you would have to go through that sort of process of going in person and paying money for a piece of paper with your own health data. But until the industry saw here's here's a new way that we might operate it was difficult to say that there was an alternative. So I think it, it was actually more of these care models showing that there was an alternative. So for us, in, for example, at OSCAR, showing that we could provide an alternative where we did cover telemedicine, where we did cover acupuncture in certain cases. That actually forced the industry to have a little bit of a reckoning because users came to the conclusion, their users, and said, hey, we wanna understand why are these services not, not covered for us, and should they be?
0: Yeah. So OSCAR specifically it seems like there was something in the water there where really, if nothing else, um, and I've never been an Oscar customer, so I couldn't even tell you if it's good or bad health insurance, but it seemed to be this breeding ground for like incredible talent in the digital health space. You're one of three or four founders that we have. Um, who started at Oscar, and you know, Harry Ritter, who's I guess like our, one of our few, like super all-star founders right now, yes. is how we met you. And, super and, all-star yeah, human. And, yeah, and, and Harry's recommendation goes yeah. an incredibly long <laughs> yeah. way with us. Um, what about that culture kind of created all of these old tech entrepreneurs?
1: Yeah, it's funny, Harry was actually my partner in building out the care delivery system at Oscar, so uh, shout out to Harry, he's a great superhuman overall. Um, I think that part of it is, you know, it, it was just pure volume. I think that, again, we started as a team when I joined the team. We were, you know, roughly at 100. You still knew everyone coming into the elevator. But we grew so quickly by virtue of the support of the investor community and also, again, just this shift in the perspective from a consumer perspective of what should my health insurance be. So we grew very, very quickly. The team itself, you know, we weren't a small startup of 10 people who worked together and then were successful and never saw each other again. We were hundreds and hundreds and ultimately thousands of people across the country who all were incredibly inspired by Mario and Josh's vision of another alternative model to the mm-hmm. way that care had been, uh, or in this case, insurance and care had been delivered. So I think that was a part of it. I think a part of it too is just luck. I think about all the time about how lucky I was to have joined this incredibly smart, diverse cohort and community at a time when we were still innovating and really each of us given the opportunity to be the masters of our own fate. Um, And then, you know, I think Oscar was just an incredible place, if if for nothing, than hiring exceptional talent. They had really unique uh, interview processes where it was less about knowing the right answer or about necessarily having the direct experience but actually a much more applicable case study to something similar that you see in consulting where it's can, how can you solve this problem so there would be a conceptual question like bradley tell me your stance on the kidney market should there be an open market for kidneys right. and then you'd have to work through it with the interviewer you don't necessarily have all the facts it's just purely about reasoning and so i think that attracted a group of people who are natural problem solvers and also very comfortable with pushing the boundaries
0: right so from there, you go to Parsley, and then yep. at some point, this idea hits you, like, hey, yep. this thing could be much better. Do you remember that, like, you're walking oh, your yeah. dog, and, you know, you stop for a, tra- a traffic light, and then you, you good like, what happened? Yeah,
1: Jordan must have told you how in love I am with my little dog, Jojo. <laughs> Most of my best ideas come walking him. Um, no, so I remember, so it was a confluence of factors. The first is that. Uh, prior to starting this business for the last six or seven years my job has largely boiled down to Making the business of running a clinic work and so everything that has to go into how do you optimally manage a doctor's time? How do you think about automating components of their workflow so that they don't have to spend time on administrative work? That does not yield actual ROI for the business was largely what what my job boiled down to and through that um, sort of lens I was working with, with, at this point, hundreds of doctors who would come to me and have really, actually really struggled with this problem. Mm -hmm. I remember so so distinctly, one doctor called me at 10 p.m. on a Wednesday night, you know, I'm sitting there doing work because I'm a stressed out millennial. Um, but She's calling me and she's literally crying on the phone and saying, I've been for the last four hours since I got off of work, I've been trying to finish up my admin work, I went on vacation last week. I feel like I'm being punished. I literally can't get my, my head above water. And I asked her, Doctor, what, what is it? What is the thing you're working on? And the, there were two things. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one was closing her notes from her patient visits. And the second one was managing patient messages. And there's lots of solutions around the former, but on the latter, when I started to really look into understanding you know, what types of messages are coming in, what are the problems, uh, about 70% of the messages were based on patients who got their lab results, yeah. panicked, <laughs> googled stuff, and then responded to the doctor asking not just one question, but like a series of questions because they're used to communicating in more of a text format. Mm-hmm. So that was the background of you know about a year of just really amping up the volume on these patient messaging problems. Through the conduit of COVID, it all got worse. And then I remember right around Thanksgiving of 2020, I was in a car and you know, the beauty of COVID is that you had lots of time in the car cause we weren't flying anywhere. So I was on a six hour car ride with my husband. I got my lab results. I was looking through them. I had a bunch of abnormals. I started complaining to my husband like, oh, this is so horrible. Why is data communicated this way? And people don't even understand their doctor's gonna get all these questions about right. this. And my husband, who is also an entrepreneur and has built a very successful business, told me, what would you do different? And that was that was it. And we spent Thanksgiving mocking up a a little design in PowerPoint of like, here's what an alternative product could look like. Um, And really, by January, I was really clear on an alternative that could work.
0: And when you were in the car, Mm -hmm. were you already aware of the kinds of technology that you could use to create these automated and just far more understandable lab reports? Or is that something you had to sort of figure out?
1: Yeah, so this was around, uh, again, the very latter half of 2020. So uh, the concept of, let's say, machine learning and natural language uh, recognition had, and really natural language processing, had come into the broader ecosystem over the last few years, the last three to five years, probably. Um, so I was familiar with it. And mm-hmm. again, my husband's an engineer, and so we, I have a, a more deep, deep understanding of it than maybe a layperson on the street yep. might. And, but I would say no, to be candid, I'd say more so where my expertise lie was in working with doctors and understanding how much of their work was actually protocolized. So back to the problem of the, you know, doctor calling me at 10 PM, she had a literal document of 30 just saved responses that she would use in different situations. And so thinking through that, how wild is it that she's going into this document in a totally different place, copy-pasting, having to find the specific case at hand, and then copy-pasting that specific segment over and over and over again back into another platform. That, to me, felt like the definition of insanity. Um, And so I would say it was a little bit less about the technology and the way you solve it and more the, like, what was the solution piece of it.
0: Right. So when you're out there talking to doctors or patients or just people in in the digital health community, what pushback, if any, do you get?
1: Yeah, so I I mean, the number one is doctors are burned out. Doctors in the broader clinical community are burned out by vendors Mm -hmm. who promise stuff that isn't real. So I think the most important piece for us is showing that credibility of letting them use it. And we have a tool online that they can actually use and live demo it. Um, It does require uh, kind of doctor credentialing uh, password. But outside of that, we are actually showing the users right up front, here's what our algorithm would spit out. And what's interesting is that now with um, some of the new arch language models coming into the market, there is this broader question of how do you differ from that? What What is the difference between you and an open AI or a BAR? And the difference is uh, actually pretty significant. And uh, it's it really comes down to predictability and the fact that Our system is a rules-based system based on clinical protocols, whereas large language models have tremendous value. I just don't believe that they're the right tool for this specific problem, Mm -hmm. where you have to really be confident in gaining the trust of the doctor that the answer that you're gonna spit out every single time, if the case case at hand is the same, that you're gonna have that predictability. And right now, that's not the case with these large language models. And so again, I think there are certain areas where they are the right tool, and then there are certain areas where potentially other applications of AI are the right tools to support your underlying tech.
0: So I'm the patient, and now my doctor is using Elaborate. I'm used to getting, I do a blood test, this totally incomprehensible Mm -hmm. charge list of stuff. What am I getting now instead?
1: Yeah, so it's pretty cool. Uh, Depending on who your doctor is and what tech they use, um, elaborate is, again, that modern interpretive layer for your health data. And so what happens is your doctor will receive that report that you're describing, we receive a copy of it at the exact same time, mm-hmm. we use your entire longitudinal health history to contextualize that specific report that we've just received, and then we'll send back to you, um, through the existing technology of your doctor, uh, summarized digital experience. For those uh, folks who are using health systems, or working with groups that are using Epic, that's more of an embedded solution that comes directly into MyChart. So no extra apps, no organs, nothing. For those groups where maybe their their, um, provider group has invested in more of a patient portal Mm -hmm. or an owned experience, like One Medical, Mm -hmm. you might experience something that's more of an embedded digital experience of Elaborate, but it's white-labeled. And the, the difference between the report that you currently receive and our experience is that our experience will highlight for you the key takeaways. And so we'll tell you right up top, here are the clinically significant findings we've found, Bradley. Here's what your results generally mean and the questions that you should be prepared to ask your practitioner. And then on the flip side, we'll also tell you, here's actually where you're doing really well. Here's what you should celebrate. Here's where you're actually hitting the standards that you want to hit for long-term health. Um, and here's the overarching next steps. You can still see the direct sort of marker by marker review of your results. But candidly, that's not actually relevant for you because You don't know what an RDW versus MCHC versus a hemoglobin A1C means. You just want to know what are the key takeaways.
0: Right, I'm not going to die. So (laughs) from the MVP to where we are today, how much has the product evolved and how much do you sort of need to incorporate patient feedback? Like, okay, you know, these these ways we're explaining things are clearly making sense, but these we're not using the right language or we're not getting the right point across or whatever it is.
1: Yeah, so I'd say the probably area where we incorporate even more feedback. We incorporate a lot of patient feedback, but candidly, because the experience is a 10x better experience than what the current right. the current default is, uh, on the patient side, the experience is very positive, and it's really about pushing the envelope of how we can make the experience even more innovative, even more informative, and ultimately build that relationship between the patient and their doctor where we get a lot more real-time feedback, especially in the early implementation, is from the doctor group, because we're able to actually customize what we're articulating to the patient to match the voice, tone, styles, SLAs, um, and even clinical nuance of the practice. Um, Because while there is a clinical standard and our technology is built on the clinical standard, such as sources like UpToDate, that clinical standard can vary doctor by doctor. You'll have some doctors who are by the book, They follow the exact by the book guide and maybe for them we don't make customizations. For others, perhaps who offer a more preventative or integrative sort of functional lifestyle based medicine, they're actually going to want to add additional customization sets that we have that allow them to engage with the patient more proactively on their health.
0: And, And would that ultimately allow you or allow doctors to communicate with their patients beyond lab results and things like that? And if so, where does it go?
1: Yeah. So our vision is to use, again, this interpretive layer of your health data to ultimately power your journey through health. Um, Today, the way that most of these practices work is that they're engaging with you at times when uh, either one, it's time for them to collect certain codes to make sure that your risk is properly captured from a health outcomes perspective, Um, or they just happen to say, hey, this is the time that I need to interact with Bradley because it's flu shot campaign, so let me send him this mailer. What I believe should be the direction that we're heading towards is a mechanism through which the doctor and patient relationship is still a human one. I believe actually very strongly that that should not be fully automated um, for actually a number of different reasons. However, uh, what you can do is use your health data to trigger next steps. So let's say for example, you're a patient 55 year old male who maybe has had well managed cholesterol, lipid levels, you're on a statin, um, you got a lipid panel, everything kind of looks like it's baselined. I don't need to see you again for a year and I can automatically trigger that outreach for you in a year rather than your doctor trying to remember to reach out to you. But if I'm an 18 year old who's had a clinically significant finding, maybe a familial history of hyperlipidemia, I might wanna see you in three to six months because I wanna get you back on track. So that's where that element of patient customization of the journey, I think oftentimes we take it from the approach of like, how does the patient wanna interact with their healthcare? and what i believe is really exciting is that we can actually use your data to objectively uh, guide you through the experience of how often you should be interacting with your doctor and through what conduit right.
0: so i use you as an example a lot when people ask me about ai and kind of our <laughs> cool. investment thesis yeah. on it and here's the here's what i say. you tell me if i'm right or wrong <laughs> right. about this which is you know my view is we see AI less as an independent category and more as a tool that most of our portfolio companies should be using to do whatever it is they're doing better, right, to deliver a better product, a better service, you know, to to make it more efficient, more cost effective. And you guys are a great example of it, where obviously you're using AI to produce the lab reports and and all the information, but you're, in our view, or my view, you're a digital health company you're not an AI company. I know that when we go public one day, we'll want to call it something else, so I'll probably not get in trouble for this. But mm-hmm. um, but, but fundamentally, to, to me at least, or to me and Jordan, the AI is a means more than it is an end. What do you think?
1: No, that's totally wrong. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, you know, uh, we released a piece a few weeks ago that specifically yep. points to this where, yeah, I think. Just like you have a screwdriver and a Phillips flathead and a hammer. I love to build Ikea furniture on the weekend. Really? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I love oh it. God. I love it. It's putting pieces together. You could together. make a lot
0: of like, <laughs> especially people who are like about to have kids, like the crew, like, some of the worst moments of my life was trying to put like the Ikea crib together. Oh
1: man, send me in. Right. I'm ready, so, I'm ready. Thank God I am not having more kids, but
0: anyone else I know, there send There you go. Life. Well,
1: there you go. Um, when when the grandkids come along eventually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, you know, just like you have different tools, for different uh, elements of that project. Similarly, you have different tools for different elements of building a software. Um, I believe that the best applications of AI are gonna be in areas where you have a deep understanding of the user's workflow and content. Mm -hmm. So generally, just to take a step back, generally the way that I think about um, the the large language models, let's say uh, applicability, there's almost two sides of what they're functionally doing. There's the first piece, which is garnering context so what they're really great at doing is understanding what am I saying what are the next words that I might ask for and what is the expected sort of output Um, they're also really great at making stuff up in response uh, to a question they don't know if it's factually correct it's not actually intelligent as a human is intelligent um, but it is very good at creating those those contextualized responses now where I think you see regulated industries especially this has come up in finance also in healthcare be very wary of the application of LLMs is in that second piece mm-hmm. because, again, you're just making stuff up. Yeah. And unless you have the large language model trained on a specific data set, um, which is very cost prohibitive at the moment, let's see if LK99 comes to fruition, um, but very cost prohibitive at the moment, you find that the the responses are not predictable nor deterministic, which is, again, a distinguishing factor of elaborate. So where we use the technology and we've used it far before it was called ChatGPT 3.5, but rather when it was called Ada and Babbage, we use it for fueling some of our underlying mechanisms and understanding context Mm -hmm. um, and pre-surfacing to our clinical team what might be the case at hand, but then ultimately having a clinician go in and again, find that clinical standard and put in the rules. So I think that's the way that you'll see it used for a long time in these regulated industries that, where there is a risk of miscommunicating mm-hmm. or misframing an output yeah. there will be a pairing of large language models to understand the context at hand of the question and then they'll be paired with more of a decision tree response structure in order to ensure the predictability of the output yeah. now i think the question of you know where can it be used end to end with zero risk i think Um, For example cases where you're using dictation is not a bad one because again you have a human literally putting in the words And then it's just picking up and guessing what the context is based on the the clinical case at hand for example Mm -hmm. That's a fairly low risk case because again you still have a human reviewing it So I think that those cases where there's a very defined workflow And you can put it in just to be able to translate and speed up the language process of the workflow It will be invaluable And other than that, I don't yet see it being sophisticated or or specific enough in the training data to be able to fully automate the embedded workflow piece.
0: So if the regulators of the world came to you and said, all right, Nicole, we know that AI needs to be regulated. Um, What should we be thinking about? What should we do? What would your advice be?
1: It's a great question. Uh, Well, they already are saying that. You see the World Health Organization is, at least in the health context, cautioning against applying this thing broadly without controls. Um, you know, I, I actually they don't need to come to me for that sort of advice. There's already pretty well established guidelines that exist um, from the existing regulatory bodies in this mm-hmm. country uh, of how this technology should be applied and what safeguards should be used. There's obviously certain protections from an ethical perspective where you want to make sure that the data isn't biased in one direction or the other. Um, from my perspective, when there are these, these higher risk scenarios, again, when you're dealing with a patient's finances or a patient's health data, um, so those types of pieces, I would be wary about letting it run wild without more controls. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's actually a pre- pretty well-defined pre-existing framework of the safeguards that you want in place in order to ensure that the delivery mechanism is fair, ethical, and then also again, observable and overseen and traceable as to what's actually happening.
0: Got it, all right. Switch topic completely here, which you are—I wouldn't say a professional marathon runner, but you you seem (laughs) like obsessive. Is that a fair word? Uh, Sure,
1: that's fair. Yeah, I think founders are obsessed with stuff. Right. Well, so
0: so it's what like there's seven major marathons, and you've done six of them. Is that right?
1: So there's six majors as of I think 2024, 2025. There will be seven or eight.
0: Which ones have you done?
1: I think they're adding Paris and South Africa. So I've uh, out of the six, I have done New York. Berlin, um, Chicago, Boston, and London. So Tokyo is the last one. It's the hardest one to get into right now because of COVID. There's years of backlogged right. runners trying to get in. Um, but yeah, I would say, you know, it's funny because when I, you know, was a kid and even after college, I couldn't run a mile. And then I... So
0: what happened? You just became a tech founder and then you're like, <laughs> I'm a tech founder. run I
1: must run I ha- now. I I have to have something to talk about. Uh, No, I actually remember very distinctly, I was living in Brooklyn. My husband and I went for a run. We were running over a bridge, we were about a half a mile in, and my knee for years had been bothering me and bothering me, I got about half a mile in and then I couldn't do it, my knee was in too much pain. And I was so frustrated, I remember being on this bridge and being like, this is not normal, I'm a 27, 28 year old, I should be able to run a few miles. This is not, this is actually not normal, we need to fix this. So I went to my doctor, we talked about it, we did like a leg scan. I had some sort of cyst in there, we did physical therapy. And then I, after the whole, you know, ordeal, I gave myself a challenge that I wanted to do a 5k, did a 5k, felt great. Then I said, okay, you know what? I did a 5k, that was pretty easy. Let me see if I could do a half marathon. I did the half and I remember at the end, turning around, looking, you know, at the finish line, looking the other way and saying, could I really do it again right now? Probably not, but I wonder if I could. And so I think it's just, you know, a little bit of this ethos of saying, what is possible? And I had, after doing that first one, then I said, wow, how crazy would it be if I did all six?
0: What was the, of of the five that you've done, what was just the most interesting route? I mean, are you looking around or you're just sort of straight ahead? You you could be like on a treadmill for all you know.
1: Uh, The first one I definitely trained for like that. And it's a pretty tough existence to be on a treadmill for four hours. Um, I'm kind of a slow runner, so I'm not very fast, but so definitely not a professional.
0: So you're, you're not going to win.
1: <laughs> no, I'm probably not going right, to win. <laughs> not not in the marathon. Um, maybe an elaborate. Uh, yeah, I think the most exciting for me and probably most folks is just the first one. Mm. Uh, for me, the first one was here in New York, and there really is no place like New York. The race here is It's just so crazy, like the neighborhoods are so distinct and you get these communities coming out and cheering for you, and obviously there were lots of people here um, who I knew and who were here supporting. I remember uh, I had a really tough time around 22 miles in, when you're up in the Upper East Side somewhere, up in Harlem, and I was just really struggling. I kept having to stop and walk, stop and walk. I thought I was never gonna get to the end. And then all of a sudden, it was almost insult injury. I feel something hit my back. And I was like, what the heck? Are you kidding me? I'm really struggling here. I'm running this stupid race. Um, and I turn around and it was actually uh, one of my closest friends who was the medical director with Harry and I at the Oscar Center, Dr. Amy Esposito. And she had seen uh, me on the app. She was walking her kids around. She had put on her sneakers and came out and then ran two miles of the race with me as we did this last terrible hill up in Central Park. And so I just remember it was such a cool moment because it felt like all of New York came out to support the runners, but especially like my people came out. Yeah. That was a really cool experience.
0: And that's what led to the whole digital health community.
1: There you go. Yeah. And that's why I built Elaborate. It was all Amy.
0: Oh, <laughs> thanks Amy. Uh, so how do people learn more about Elaborate? How do they follow you? That kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in order to learn more, please check us out. We're Elaborate.com. Uh, you can also check us out on all the socials. We'll link them out here. And yeah, especially for those folks who um, are practitioners, we love hearing feedback, we love hearing from you, so please reach out to us. We're always open to a conversation, uh, and even if it's just to show you a spin of the product and give you access to that little sandbox, we'd love to have you test it, take it for a spin, and give us your thoughts.
0: Great, and Pikowski. thank you for joining Thank you. Firewall is recorded on the lower east side of PNT Network, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at Bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.